0: From Superman to Batman to Wonder Woman, we are familiar with many of the main characters of DC Comics. Uh, Many grew up reading comic books. Nearly all of us have seen some movie based on a DC Comics personality. Have you heard about DC Comics' newest superhero coming in March of this year? Their newest superhero is Jesus Christ, and here is their description of the upcoming comic. Witness the return of Jesus Christ as He is sent on a most holy mission by God to learn what it takes to be the true Messiah of mankind by becoming roommates with the world's favorite Savior, the all-powerful superhero Sunman, the last son of Crispix. But when Christ returns to earth, He's shocked to discover what has become of His gospel, and now He aims to set the record straight. So when God in the comic sees Sun Man, he tells his son in the comic, of course, that's what I wanted for you, Jesus. So God sends his son back to earth to help Jesus get on the right track. Is Jesus in need of rehabilitation? Is he just another fictitious character like any other character in a comic book? Well, this morning, we're going to think about the identity of of the Lord Jesus as we look in Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to take a pew Bible. Turn to page 1043. You'll remember that the book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote to encourage this church. It was a vibrant church, but they faced the challenge of false teachings. False teachers were were there trying to promote their own false gods and their own false gospels, their own saviors. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, But now He has reconciled you by His physical body through His death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. And if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. In this text, Paul teaches that Christ is Lord of all. He's not in need of some kind of rehabilitation. He's not in need of some kind of second chance. He is Lord of all. And Paul gives us three ways this is true. Let's take a look at verses 15 through 18 as we, as we consider the first way that Christ is Lord of all. Paul calls Christ the image of the invisible God. This means that Jesus is the exact likeness of God. When you go to a mirror and look, you see your exact likeness, whether you like it or not. That's what a mirror does. It shows you what you look like. And when we look at Jesus, we see the exact likeness of God. We see the nature of God manifested and revealed. Now, consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this age, that being Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says that the devil has blinded unbelievers so that they wouldn't see the light of the gospel, who is the image of God. So Satan blinds the minds of non-Christians so they won't see the truth about who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who created everything. As one author summarized, Jesus is the perfect visible manifestation of the invisible God. Could it be this morning that you've been tricked about who Jesus is? Maybe you've been tricked regarding whether or not uh, he is the son of God. Some of you maybe have believed, you know what, Jesus, he was just a good man. He's not the son of God. Others of you may have believed that he was just a fictional character. He's just a guy that that people have made up and some religion has formed around this, this fellow who never lived. Or maybe you've never thought seriously about the identity of Jesus, about who he is. Is it possible that Satan has blinded you about the reality of who Christ is, that he's trying to keep you from discovering the beauty and the joy of savoring Jesus? Perhaps you're here today because the Lord is wooing you to see the beauty of the Son. Because the Lord is trying to pull off the blindness of your eyes and help you to see the Son. To see Him in His amazing beauty. You see, if we want to know God, there is only one way to God the Father. And it's through the Lord Jesus. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus said this. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Now next, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn over all creation. Is Paul suggesting that Jesus was the first creation that God made by calling him firstborn? After all, this was a a serious controversy in the early church. Uh, There was a leader in the church at Alexandria named Arius, and Arius argued that Jesus wasn't eternal or equal with the Father. He argued that that Jesus was God's first creation. So there was God, and then later God decided to create Jesus. Now, this issue created an uproar in the whole Roman Empire. And so in 325, Emperor Constantine called a council together to consider this issue. A council was a, a leader. Uh, uh, it was all the leaders of the church coming together. And at this council, the church leaders debated the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Was he of the same substance as God, or was he of a different substance? Or to put it more simply, was Jesus God, or was he not? Well, the followers of Arius argued that Jesus was of a different substance, that he was less than God. On the other hand of the debate were those who believed that Jesus was fully God, that he was completely God of the same substance. This group was led by Athanasius, they held that Jesus was co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He was nothing less than God. Well, after debate, the Council of Nicaea held that Scripture taught that Jesus is indeed God, not a creation of God, but God, not a lesser God, but, but God Himself. They issued a belief statement, the first of its kind, created by a council of church leaders. You've possibly heard of it, the Nicene Creed, and the early church in this creed, a agreed that Scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God. Guess what? The false teachings of Arius are still very much alive today, nearly 2,000 years later. And the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is not God. They teach that Jesus is a creation of God. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses is not the high and the exalted Son of God, but a diminished lesser God. Like the church rejected Arianism centuries ago, so we must stand firm on scripture. The Jesus of the Bible is God Himself, nothing less. Now let's get back to verse 15. By firstborn is Paul, Paul is arguing that that Jesus is before all creation. He comes before time, therefore, before creation. He is eternal. Also, calling Jesus firstborn emphasizes His supremacy over all of creation. In Israel, the firstborn son was granted privileges not accorded to the other siblings. He was the representative of his father and was responsible for stewarding the the household. Well, Christ is indeed the representative of the Father, and He stewards not a household, but Christ stewards the whole universe. In verse 16, Paul reiterates what he has already said Christ is creator of all things. And again, this underscores the fact that Jesus wasn't a created being because He created all things. Now, if you get a hold of a Jehovah's Witness Bible, the New World Translation, you're going to discover in reading verses 16 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1, the word other is added five times in those verses. For example, in Colossians 1.16, if you read the Jehovah's Witnesses version of the Bible, it says, By means of Him, or Jesus, all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth. Why do the Jehovah's Witnesses add the word other there? The word isn't in the Greek manuscripts. They add the word other because they falsely teach that Jesus is the first created being. And so instead of changing their theology to match the Bible, they change the Bible to match their theology. Jesus is Creator. He is not created being. Jesus isn't merely the creator of the physical universe. No, Paul says that he created both the visible and the invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities were all created by Jesus. There are no angels who are higher than Jesus. The false teachers might have been worshiping angels. They might have been encouraging people to, to vow allegiance to angels. But Paul would have none of that. For Jesus is not just an angel. No, he's higher than the angels. He created the angels. Now, to say that Paul created all things is not to say that he created Satan and demons as they are now. They were originally created as angels. However, they rejected God's authority, and in doing so, they became fallen angels. And Christ ultimately rules over every angel, every demon, and even Satan. Yes, every spiritual reality. And one day Satan and his demons will stand before Jesus and he will put an end to all of their wickedness. Now in this passage, Paul uses three prepositions to explain Jesus' relationship to creation. The first is the word by. Notice that everything was created by Jesus. This means that through Jesus' power and creative ability, the creation came to be. One author said it like this, If God, the Father, is the architect of creation, then Jesus is the builder. Then Jesus is the builder. So next, Paul uses the word through. All things were created through Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the agent by which creation came to be. Then Paul says that creation is for Jesus. All things were created for him. Jesus is the goal of creation. All the universe is created for his glory. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Christ is Lord of all creation. The creation exists for His glory. Now, someone might build a statue to, to honor a hero. Well, friends, look at the vastness of the universe. That's the statue that honors Christ. It helps us see how great and amazing and majestic He is. In verse 17, Paul says that Jesus is before all things. In other words, before time existed, Jesus was. He's eternal. Then Paul says that by Christ, all things hold together. That is, Christ sustains all of creation. Creation holds together by the power of God. So what do verses 15 through 17 teach us about the fact that Jesus is Lord of all? Well, one of the ways is that Christ is Lord of all creation. Christ is Lord of all creation. Have you ever been far, far out in the country, away from all the lights of the city? On a perfectly clear night, you look up into the sky and you see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars. It's just, it's breathtaking and overwhelming. Or have you ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, peering down into the depths of those awesome channels? Or have you stood on the edge, the shore of the ocean with your eyes closed, listening to the waves, the incessant, powerful crash of each wave? Or have you been in the delivery room moments after the precious birth of a newborn baby? Each little finger, every tiny toe, yes, every part of that little body, miraculous What's the point of creation's beauty? It's to help us see the beauty of Christ. It's to lead us to Him. It's to remind us that God is great, that He's creator and sovereign over all. Christ is the Lord of every molecule, every atom, every subatomic particle in the whole universe. He's the Lord of all the creation. How should this shape our lives and our thinking? Well, first, don't be tricked into following a false savior. Jesus, as presented in the Bible, is the only true savior. The Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, or the Jesus of the Mormons, for example, is not the true Jesus. The secular promise that Jesus is mostly irrelevant and that the best life is found in embracing progressive values and living in a sea of relativism is no more than a mirage, promising what it cannot possibly deliver. Stick with Jesus, the Jesus that you see in the pages of this book. He is the true Savior. Next, learn these essential biblical truths about Jesus. The best way to keep from being tricked is to know the truth about who Jesus is. And here are a few biblical truths that are touched on in this passage that will be helpful for you to know. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that there is one God who exists as three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Next, each member of the Trinity is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Next, Jesus is fully God and fully man, not part God and part man. Jesus has two natures, the human nature and the divine nature. As you think through applying this in your life, live a life of worship. Live a life of worship. Jesus is great and incredible. Live a life that reveals how awesome he is. Let your words, your thoughts, and your actions, let all of them bring him glory. Magnify his greatness. We've seen that Christ is Lord over all creation. Let's look for the second way that Jesus is Lord of all Look in verses 18 and following. Paul says that Christ is head of the church. Now, the church is the body of Christ. By church, Paul means all those who have been redeemed, who have turned to Jesus in faith. As the body of Christ, the church is pictured as living. With the church being the body of Christ, there's an inseparable inseparable union between Christ and His body, His people. While the church includes all those Who know Jesus, Paul expects his readers to be a part of a local church. Through countless local churches, Christ continues his work here on earth. Now, sometimes people are ambivalent about being a member of a church, but this doesn't square well with the Bible. What if someone told you, I like you all right, but I don't care for your body. What would you think of that person? You probably wouldn't be too fond of them, would you? Why is it that we claim to love Jesus but frequently showed little concern for his body, for the church. On what basis is Christ the head of the church? Well, Paul answers that question. He says that the reason that Christ is head is because he's the beginning. That is, the church has its beginning in Jesus. Paul also says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. What does Paul mean? Well, Jesus is the first to have resurrection life, never to die again. He was raised from the dead and will live forever. And all those who put their faith in Christ one day will also enjoy that resurrection life. And so the church comes into being through Jesus, through His resurrection, through the resurrection uh, of, of us as we put our faith in Christ and will one day experience that glorified life. Next, Paul says that Christ will have first place in everything. He'll have first place in everything. In other words, he's preeminent over all things. In verse 19, Paul reiterates the fact that Jesus is God. When Christ came to earth in his incarnation, he was fully God and fully man. All of the attributes and all of the power of God are present in Jesus. Now, On verse 20, we see that God planned to reconcile all things through Jesus. To reconcile means to remove hostility or to change from being an enemy to a friend. So what's Paul mean? He's going to reconcile everything to himself? Does this mean that everyone will ultimately be saved? It can't mean that. For Jesus himself in Matthew 25 verse 46 said that the unrepentant would be punished eternally. In fact, over and over, Scripture makes it clear that we will face the judgment of God if we are unrepentant. So Paul isn't teaching universalism, the belief that everybody will be saved. But what is Paul teaching? Paul is speaking cosmically. The brokenness of the whole universe will one day be undone because of Christ's work of redemption. This will occur at the end of time when the kingdom of God is fully realized. So this text doesn't teach that every person will believe in God and be reconciled to Him, but that every person and everything will submit to God ultimately. In verse 20, Paul points to Christ's Death on the cross, it is through His sacrifice that we can have peace with God. It is only through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross that we can be in a right relationship with the Lord. And this way, Christ's death is offered as a payment for the penalty we deserve for our sin. God the Father accepts Christ's payment for our sin in place of punishing us. This is called substitutionary atonement. Jesus paid the debt that we owed for our sin. So what do verses 18 through 20 teach us about Christ's supremacy? Christ is Lord of the church. He's Lord of the new creation. John Dawson is a great example of a true hero. Mr. Dawson fought in three wars on five ships as a member of the U.S. Navy. He served in the Pacific Theater in World War II, served in the Korean War, served in the Vietnam War. And in his latter years, he had taken his time, and dedicated himself to veterans who were struggling. He was a faithful believer and a member of his church. A few months back, an intruder broke into Dawson's home, and Mr. Dawson was murdered, protecting his wife. And his wife was injured, but she wasn't killed. This was his wife of 72 years. This 92-year-old man died protecting his bride. His life was about others, about protecting and caring for others. There's an example of a true hero. Mr. Dawson's example reminds us of Jesus who gave his very life for his bride, the church. And for this reason, Jesus is Lord of the church. He gave his all for us. Let's think about how the fact that Jesus is Lord of the church ought to shape our lives. First, Do you live as if the church is the body of Christ? Is your concern for Christ's body, the church, revealed by a deep commitment to gather with other believers and worship, to to worship the head of the church? Is your commitment to the body of Christ revealed by by regular service in the church, helping to further the mission of making disciples? Do you pray for and pour out your heart and soul for for the body of Christ? After all, Jesus died for the church. His bride matters to him. Does the bride of Christ matter to you? Have you committed your life to a local church? Next, learn these essential biblical truths about who Jesus is. Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. This means that universalism, that everyone will be saved, is unbiblical. Only those who repent and call out to Christ are saved. Next, substitutionary atonement is the belief that Christ's death pays God the Father the debt we owe for our sin. Jesus was our substitute when He died on the cross. These are important biblical truths that will protect you from from those who might try to lead you away from the Word of God. Now let's look in verses 21 through 23 for the third way that Paul says Christ is Lord of all. In verse 20, Paul spoke for Christ of Christ's general work of reconciliation. Now he speaks specifically of the redemption of the Colossians. They had been alienated from God. They were separated from Him. They were hostile to God in their thinking and in their attitudes. This hostility was expressed outwardly by their sinful behavior. They had lived how they wanted to live. They didn't care what God had to say. But look in verse 22. Things had changed. God had reconciled the Colossians to himself through Christ's physical body as Jesus died on the cross. Now, false teachers had likely claimed that salvation was found through angels or through other spiritual beings. And so Paul emphasizes the fact that Jesus was not only God, and we've already talked about that, but that he was also fully human. That's, that's what he says here. And it was in his physical earthly body as a human that he accomplished redemption. In this way, Christ can present people who are guilty before God because of our sin as holy, faultless, and blameless before God. But how can we stand before God as holy, faultless, and blameless when every one of us is guilty of countless sin? Well, when we turn to Jesus in faith, the Scriptures teach that our sins are forgiven and the perfect life that Jesus lived when He was here on earth is credited to us. It's given to us. So we have a kind of positional holiness. In other words, when God looks down at a person who's in Christ, he sees the holiness of his own son. Of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to become more and more holy. Of course we should. God calls us to live holy lives. But our position before God is secure in Christ when we've turned to Christ in faith. It's not something we have to earn, something we have to merit. In verse 23, Paul urges the Colossians to continue on in the gospel. He's warning them not to be tricked or deceived by those who would offer another gospel, a false gospel. The tense of the Greek verb in verse 23 reveals Paul's confidence that the Colossians would indeed remain faithful. Paul is reminding these brothers and sisters that true hope is found only in the true gospel. Of course, the Colossians would be tempted to follow after other teachings that promised enlightenment, that promised salvation in some other way. But these were false promises. The gospel that had been preached widely, Paul says here, the gospel that he himself had been a servant of, that's the gospel to which they must hold fast. So what do verses 18 through 20 teach us about Christ's supremacy? Christ is Lord of each believer. He's Lord of each Believer. Terry Billings was your average good old boy. He worked, tried to provide hard for his family, and he said he spent most of his free time behind a bottle. He never darkened the doors of a church. One day, Billings' boy got saved, and his boy wanted his daddy to to come to his baptism. And so uh, Billings agreed to go to church. He'd go to church that time, wanted to be a good dad, but by one o'clock, he was drinking again. He was invited back the next Sunday, and he went, and he went back a third Sunday. And right after church, he said that he went to Walmart. And in Walmart, of all places, he said that all of a sudden, God just convicted him of his sin. He, he said, I felt so visible like everything I had ever done was right there before God's eyes, and that his eyes we're on me. And he got saved right there in Walmart when he was 45 years old. And Billing said he's never, ever been the same. That's what Jesus does. He saves people. He, he remakes people. He changes people. He is the Lord of every believer. H- how should this truth affect our lives? Well, have you been made right with God? Has that happened in your life? Have you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus? Have you been saved? Next, if you know Jesus, are you continuing on in the faith? Are you growing in Him and becoming more and more anchored in the truth of God's Word, growing deeper in your love for the Lord Jesus? Next, learn these essential biblical truths about Jesus. Positional holiness refers to the Christian standing before God. A Christian is holy before God because Christ imputes or credits his own righteousness to those who turn to him. In other words, when I call out to Jesus and say to Jesus, I know that I've sinned, please forgive me, I believe in you, the perfect life, the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to me before God, and I have a kind of positional holiness that can't be messed up, even if I drop the ball. Christ's holiness still covers me. That's why I'm safe in God's hands. That's why I'm secure eternally. Next, practical holiness refers to God's desire for each of us to become more and more like Jesus in our daily lives. Next, perseverance of the believer or eternal security is the the belief that a person who has turned to Christ in faith will persevere in faith and is eternally secure. In other words, a person who truly knows the Lord Jesus cannot lose his or her salvation. It can't happen. They, You never earned it. You can't lose it. If you have genuinely put your faith in Christ, then the holiness of Christ has been credited to you and nothing you do, nothing you do will change that. You'll never get out of the hands of God if you're in the hands of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. If God has been so gracious to save us, of course we want to live lives that honor Him. And if you are a believer and you decide that you're going to, because God's given you grace, you're going to live however you want to live, you'll find yourself for a while maybe living it up, but you'll find yourselves eventually, friends, at the foot of Jesus, broken, because God disciplines those He loves. You can read about it in Hebrews 11. But if you're in Christ, friend, you're eternally secure. You didn't save yourself And you can't unsave yourself. So we've seen that Christ is the Lord of each believer. Do you remember being back in elementary school? Now, for some of us, that's going to take a little more work than than others, isn't it? When you were in elementary school, did you ever get into trouble? Well, when I was in first grade, I had a tough time keeping my mouth shut. And uh, for this reason, my teacher sent me out in the hall on more than one occasion. Well, one particular time I was I was out in the hallway, sitting in the hallway. And every now and then when you were in the hallway, the principal would walk by and she would ask, "Why are you out here in the hall?" Well, I'd been sent out in the hall a couple times before and she never came by, but I'd heard she does sometimes. Well, this particular time, guess what? Mrs. Reeves came walking down the hall, and I was terrified of her. She was the principal of, of Bowie Elementary. I'm not sure why I was so scared of her, but, boy, I was scared of her. Well, she came by, and she asked me, and I told her, and she scolded me. She, she used her words. She didn't give me any licks. There was no paddle involved. She used her words, and that was the last time I got sent into the hall. I straightened up. Why? Because I recognized and understood Mrs. Reeves' was in charge. There was no doubt in my little mind I didn't want to cross her again. Yes, Mrs. Reeves ran Bowie Elementary. She was in charge and I'm pretty sure the teachers knew it too. Well friends, Jesus runs the universe. He runs the universe. He's supreme overall. There's no question that he he is in charge. He's Lord of all, Lord of all creation. Lord of the church, his new creation, and he's Lord of every believer. Brothers and sisters, are you learning more about him? Are you growing deeper in your love and affection for him? So spend time in worship, reflecting on who he is, on his majesty, his supremacy. When you see his beauty, you realize that so much of what you chase after is incidental and small. Yes, let's. Treasure him above all things. Jesus is the only true superhero. If you don't know the Lord Jesus this morning, you have the incredible opportunity of becoming a follower of his. He can be Lord of your life. Make no mistake, friend. Your knee will bend to the Lord Jesus. And you will confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 makes this clear. The only question is when you'll make your confession of who Jesus is. You see, Hebrews nine twenty seven teaches that every one of us will die and that we will stand before God at judgment. How can you stand on that day? The only way you can stand is if you've called out to Jesus in faith. If you've been saved, if you've trusted in him as your savior, then That day He will joyfully welcome you into His kingdom. If you refuse to turn to Him, you will face the eternity that you always demanded here on earth, life without God. And it will be a horror. And in this day of terror, your knee will bend and your tongue will confess the truth of the greatness of the Lord Jesus. But on that day, it will be too late. So I ask you again, have you turned to the Lord Jesus? If you haven't this morning, you could. You could call out to him and say, Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried and that you rose again. And I want to follow you. And if you call out to Jesus like that, you'll be in the hands of God. And he'll never let go of you for all eternity. You can know the beauty, the majesty, the joy of Christ firsthand. Let's pray together.